And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, March 2nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, meet the civilian career employee who's operated at the highest levels of the national security apparatus. Plus, the Census Bureau fine-tunes almost everything it does as it transforms into a self-described digital agency. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal unions are letting the new Congress know what they want. The National Treasury Employees Union, for one, is urging a big pay raise in 2024, more paid leave and expanded telework. NTEU's national president, Tony Reardon, says he knows he's got a tough sell. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And at the top of that list, Drew, is that 8.7 percent federal pay raise that is in legislation, not in law yet. How does NTEU say they rationalize it? What's their justification? Tom, so it's not really a surprise here. NTEU has been in favor of the FAIR Act for a very long time. And they said that, especially this year, it's a pretty significant pay raise. It would be 8.7%. But given the fact that there's been a lot of rising inflation, costs of living have been going up, NTEU and its national president, Tony Reardon, say that the 4.6% didn't really match up with the expectation that they kind of had for it last year. They're pushing for something a little bit more sizable and that would match up with the landscape that we've seen recently. With the FAIR Act, it would be, as I said, an 8.7% raise. That would be a 4.7% base pay raise plus an average 4% locality pay raise. And even though it's never been enacted, they're hoping that this year things might look a little bit different. Yeah, that's interesting because 8.7% across the board would really be the same as 4.7 plus 4. Now, the union is also urging an expansion of paid leave for federal employees. Again, an idea that gets bounced around every year. What's the latest there? The legislation that is related to this, it's called the Comprehensive Paid Leave for Federal Employees Act. It would essentially give federal employees 12 weeks of paid time off for family and medical leave. And this would act as a replacement for the 12 unpaid weeks that we currently get through the Family and Medical Leave Act. NTU is, of course, a an advocate of this legislation, and they have conducted an internal survey of their union leaders and found that about a third of those who were surveyed have a close family member with a serious medical condition. And Reardon explains more what this would mean for those who have that issue. I think it shows how paid family leave would really have a profoundly positive impact for federal employees that would allow them the opportunity to take time off to care for those those family members if it was needed. We all hear a lot of heartbreaking stories from members all the time, like using all, up all of their personal leave to take care of an elderly parent and having no leave left for themselves. Or members who are forced to take unpaid leave for a week, maybe many weeks, and then come back to work with literally more debt and a great deal more stress. And I think it's fair to say that issue is a mixed bag because some people in the private sector do get that level of paid leave from their jobs, and that's not the case right. in the federal government, correct? Exactly, Tom. Reardon also added to that saying that the federal government really should act as a 
model employer, as he put it in that sense. And the country seems to be moving in, in that direction in a larger sense for the workforce. And he says the federal government should be at the helm of that. And telework is a big topic for just about anyone connected with the government. At their conference, what did NTEU say about how they want to shape the whole telework future? They share similar sentiments to other federal unions and other organizations that are advocating for federal employees. They said that there's a really strong sentiment from the federal workforce that essentially telework works. It helps federal employees be more productive. And NTU added that they're also trying to include maximizing telework in a lot of their union contracts to just sort of solidify their telework policies rather than just have it in words. And he also criticized pretty strongly the Show Up Act, which is a bill from House Republicans that would essentially return the federal workforce to pre-pandemic work arrangements. And what that means is a lot of people would have to go back to the office. The bill got a lot of pushback, but it did pass the House. But Reardon criticized it, as I said, pretty strongly. It's easier to say that federal employees, they need to show up at their work sites by claiming that, you know, American taxpayers are not being served than it is for them to acknowledge that they simply don't support federal employees or their unions. They would rather not explain that they know telework works just fine. Thank you very much. That, in fact, it increases productivity, decreases costs, and, oh, no, this is a horrible one, it improves morale. All right. He's a stumwinder there, wasn't he, at that legislative conference, old Tony Reardon. And Drew, Schedule F, another big topic for all of the unions. I don't imagine there's much daylight between NTEU and all of the other unions, lots of employees for that matter, and lots of politicians of both parties about Schedule F. No, you're absolutely right. NTU is following suit with what has been a very strong sentiment from a lot of people just, you know, having fear or concern or criticism of this Schedule F policy from the Trump administration. And instead of that, NTU, along with many others, said that they're endorsing the Saving the Civil Service Act. That's recent legislation that was reintroduced. And what that bill would do is prevent future presidential administrations from reclassifying federal employees from the competitive service to the accepted service and outside merit system principles. It's the third time this bill has been reintroduced and NTEU, along with other unions, other organizations have said it's really important to try to get this across the finish line. And interestingly, the NTEU, they had a an internal survey, as I mentioned earlier, that was surveying union leaders. In that survey, about 75% of respondents said that their biggest fear from another Schedule F type policy would actually be the the fact that uh, that politics would compromise their agency's mission. So less focus on the fear of losing their own jobs or job protections and more on what it would mean for the agency as a whole. Here's Reardon on that topic. That says a whole lot, I think, about federal employees and why they are in the work, doing the work of the American people that that they do. It is something that is very evident to us. We see it all the time that federal employees, they're dedicated to the mission of their agencies. They're not in this, you know, for personal gain. That's not what it's about for them. They're about doing what is to the benefit of the American people. 
And in the 118th Congress, Drew, there is a little bit more tension between Congress and the White House with the House in Republican hands. Does NTU, did Tony Reardon say anything about that divide changing? And is there any hope for any of this in the next couple of years? That is the 118th. That's a great question, Tom. Reardon expressed a lot of that concern. He said that House leadership, he plainly called them hostile. He said they've gone after IRS funding and telework policies, as we talked about earlier. So he thinks it's going to be a challenging couple of years. But the message he wanted to leave with attendees at the legislative conference and just the union and members in general is that NTU ultimately wants to work with everyone in Congress. They said that they're going to try to push forward on their issues and try to educate lawmakers to see things more from their perspective and why they want to move forward on some of these bills. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Census Bureau fine-tunes almost everything it's doing as it transforms into a self-described data-driven digital agency. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The Census Bureau is still assessing what it learned from a national count conducted during a pandemic, but it's also looking ahead to how it can best operate as a statistical agency, perhaps the premier statistical agency 25 years into the 21st century. For an update, we turn to Census Director Robert Santos. Mr. Santos, good to have you back. Uh, Good morning. It's always great to be with you, Tom. And you have written quite an extensive blog here. It looks like you've thought about this a lot, a lot of bullet points in there. And I guess let's start with the first point that I caught, if you don't mind, and the uh, 2020 derived products still to come out in 2023. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done there, too, you are telling the Bureau. That is absolutely correct. The pandemic led to delays in the census products We focused much of our resources to get out the absolutely constitutionally required counts for apportionment. Those are 50 numbers. We got those out as quickly as we could, followed by the redistricting files. And since then, we've been working to develop the remainder of the releases, the first of which will be coming in May of 2023, called the Demographic and Housing Characteristics Files. And that has the basic demographic population counts, you know, for sex, age, race, ethnicity, down to small geographic levels, followed by in August, there will be a release of the detailed demographic housing characteristics file A. And all it means is that they were split up, the detailed tables were split up into three products Uh, the first of which will be released in August. And that contains a very highly detailed and granular geography and race ethnicity 
types of categories. So there'll be over 370 separate race ethnicity categories on that file, including over 1,200 individual American Indian and Alaska Native village tribes. So it will be really nicely, highly detailed, very rich data that's coming out in August, as well as a standard product that we usually put out, which is the congressional district profiles for their governance. That's always a hit with Congress. (laughs) It strikes me that if the nation was a pointillist painting, the big 2020 count of how many, 360 million, et cetera, is looking at it from a block away. But the products mm-hmm. coming out next, we can walk right up to it with a magnifying glass and see what's really going on at a very localized level. I think something just came out the other day that town I live in in Maryland is like one of the top 10 diverse places. Who knew? I guess you could walk around and see it. But now we have that evidence. Fair way to characterize these uh, forthcoming products? Yes, they're much more pixelated so that you could do deep dives into them. You have to watch out. You can't go too low because you might end up with a little bit of noisy data. But it's really nicely rich data that will tell us who we are as a nation. Paint a very bright, colorful portrait of the diversity that we are. And this is really useful for policymakers, but also for people in business that really want to tailor what they do to whom they expect to serve. The uses of data that is that detailed are only limited by one's creativity and imagination. There are many applications both in the business sector, in the government sector, as well as for local communities, you know, be they, you know, school boards or community economic development groups, chambers of commerce and businesses love these data. There's going to be a lot of utility in that. We're speaking with the U.S. Census Bureau Director Robert Santos, and you have done some re-engineering now for 2030 already. I guess to the public, it seems like, wow, that's really soon. But to census, each 10 years is almost like a heartbeat away. Actually, that is correct. And we throw in some extra heartbeats as well. We actually started on the 2030 census in the 2018-2019 part of the decade. So we are now going full steam ahead. There is much to be planned. And what's interesting is that we are approaching this in a couple of different ways, one of which is that the Census Bureau itself is in the process of transforming itself into a 21st century federal statistical agency enterprise, where we're doing a paradigm shift from being a transactional data collection operation where we have surveys, we have censuses, we knock on doors, we solicit individual entities and ask them to provide information to one that leverages existing data, administrative data from, you know, IRS records. We have MOUs, Memorandum of Understanding, to share data with IRS, with the Social Security Administration, with Medicare, with Medicaid, and so forth. These data are very rich and can provide a lot of information, often information that is asked in the decennial census or in a survey, but folks fail to include it. Either they're in a rush and they skip over or they don't know the answer. So we're finding and leveraging those data to create this different paradigm where we start with all the information from different sources that we compile together 
and then we identify gaps and then fill in those gaps through targeted solicitation. We're looking as an enterprise for this combination of blended administrative data and solicited data to actually be much more powerful and useful, have higher utility for social problems and governance than the individual data programs that generate them. And so we're really excited about that. It does have implications to the 2030 census because as we're moving forward and testing and such, we're adopting as much as possible because uh, we're in the midst of transformation. We're adopting as much as possible the ability to leverage this different enterprise, this different approach, so that we can create a more efficient and more highly accurate decennial process that capitalizes on information we have and then looks to fill in for basically hard to reach populations and historically undercounted folks. What about information sharing, say, at the state level, where oh, there might be yes. much more detailed records about, say, businesses, locations, and ownership, and that kind of thing, as the states try to grapple with this issue themselves? What an amazing commentary. You read our minds. Uh, we are looking to supplement the federal national data that we have available with whatever additional sources of information we can find. And we have for a long time already been soliciting and working with states to see if we can identify and leverage their administrative data sources from things like you know, motor vehicle registration, voter registration, things of that sort. And we have had limited success we respect the sovereignty of each state and recognize that not everyone is going to want to join the bandwagon to create a larger data product that benefits society just because you know states are states and they have their own vision of what they want to do with their data. We are accumulating state by state as much information as we can. If we have it and it's determined to be useful, we will use it. <laughs> It does require a bit of processing because states are free to, and they should, design their data systems and their collections according to what meets their needs for their population. And that does not always necessarily sync with the way that we need it or use it. And so there's this processing that, and, and exploration that needs to, to be conducted before we can make it fully useful. And what about commercial data sources? A lot of agencies are using that for purposes of identity verification in cybersecurity and this kind of thing. But there's also a lot of information, again, economic, population, mm -hmm. demographic, that is in those commercial databases. Is that suitable and is it proper for census to look at those? The answer is yes and yes. <laughs> the opportunity to leverage information does not lie solely with other federal agencies or departments and the states. It also includes the private sector. We are exploring and actually use for 2020 some commercial data to help inform us as to things like which addresses had occupied housing units and things of that sort. So there have been some uses of it already. We're looking to expand that but careful to make sure that we don't overly rely on big data. 
because you're only one CEO or board decision away from suddenly not having it. <laughs> so uh, we tread carefully, but we are deliberate and we want to seize whatever opportunities we have out there. It strikes me that a lot of these sources that augment what Census Bureau gathers itself, even if it doesn't change numbers necessarily, provides a really good error checking mechanism that makes you more uh, accurate. It- Yes, it does, although you always have to question which one is the more accurate. <laughs> well, you're the statistician, so I, not me. So I... That's right. <laughs> Our bigger approach is that more information is better than less information. And so we're willing to bring it all in and line it all up and match it and see to what extent we can exploit it to create more accurate data and fulfill our mission of providing the nation with quality data on our, our population and our economy. And census operates, I think, as we indicated at the beginning, as part of a population of statistical agencies in the government. There's a whole community. But I always think of census as kind of a big one in the room there. But what is going on in the federal statistical community on some of these data sources and data usage gambits that are shareable? And how is that all changing? Uh, Well, we do have an interagency committee on statistical policy that is composed of uh, not only the uh, 13 federal uh, statistical agencies, but also because of the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, uh, representatives, uh, statistical officers from all the other departments. And we coordinate and share information about how we are leveraging our data and working with and under the guidance of the chief statistician of the U.S., Karen Orvis, and her wonderful staff at OMB to make sure that we provide consistently and report data that fulfills the OMB regulations and standards as to things like uh, race and ethnicity reporting and, and such. And you can't have a discussion about statistics or gathering or data nowadays without talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning. And you have stated, again, going back to your blog, that you are trying to modernize economic statistics and that AI and ML might have a role here. Maybe just briefly explain what that would be. The notion is that AI and machine learning are tools, and the tools are only as good as where you apply them appropriately. So our initial forays, and it's going to expand, our initial forays have been on things like the economic census, which is ongoing. We're collecting data from, you know, 4 million businesses right now. And if you look at the application, the survey online that you go through, there are areas where you have to put in things like, you know, what types of services do you provide? Do you put in a text or what is the industry that you're in? And as a respondent records text of what their business is all about, a drop-down menu will automatically pop up that takes the text that was written and uses an AI algorithm to subselect the most likely categories that fit into whatever text that was. And so it eases the burden of having to scroll and scroll and scroll through countless. Uh, you know, we, we produce so many things and we have so many industries in our country. So it really cuts down that burden so that they can quickly and easily identify the category for that particular question that's being asked. And if you think about it, that does two things. 
One is it eases the burden, and so the individual is more likely to continue until completion. And the second is it creates more accurate data because it basically does what previously had been a laborious effort to have human eyes among the millions of text responses and then having to go through the mental cognitive challenge of taking that and trying to identify what code it belongs to. All right. And then all of these things together, when you talk about the data-centric operation, use of ML and AI and everything else, there must be a pretty strong technology component to support this new approach. And just maybe give us a quick survey of what's going on on the IT front there to enable all of this. Certainly, we are, as I mentioned, as an enterprise, the Census Bureau is transforming into a 21st century data-centric type of single enterprise operation. And that requires that we take our platforms that historically have been stovepiped into individual data collection systems, like the Decennial had their own system for collecting data. The current population study had their own. The you know crime victimization survey had their own, et cetera, et cetera. And creating a single platform where it doesn't matter which survey you're doing, you can use the common platform to not only create all the questions in whatever survey that are being done, but also manage the sample, however that's defined. And it doesn't matter whether it's an economic study, annual business study, or a national health interview study of persons. It'll all be one common platform. Then the data from that platform, because it's now a single enterprise platform gets ingested into a large data lake where all the data exist and can be linked together to create more powerful databases to maybe answer questions that couldn't otherwise be answered, as well as to provide the historical data products that are done. And then there's the data dissemination aspect where we're creating a single enterprise type of operation where we can easily disseminate data and have people access that very easily. And it leads to better, more efficient data products, including data visualizations and things of that sort, really facilitates that whole operation. And just a final question with all of these activities going on and the establishment of memoranda of understanding and so on, are people at the Bureau, what's the percentage of people teleworking, remote, and coming back into the Bureau these days? These days, we are in a unique situation. The Census Bureau actually has upwards of 13,000-plus individuals who work with us across a large Suitland-based headquarter facilities, as well as six regional offices and a national processing center and then a contact center, basically a telephone center in Tucson. So what the Suitland operation, which has the bulk of our full-time staff, is actually in a high flexible telework situation out of necessity. We are in the process of taking our 900,000 square feet and remodeling it. The contractors are in place. Work has begun, and that will take a little bit of while. So in the near future, uh, there will be a continued very flexible telework in the regional offices. Naturally, there'll be a combination of in-office work as well as some liberal telework type of thing. 
So we're in a really good place. I think right now as a holding area, we develop the new renovated space, at which time we'll have a full telework policy. So you're remodeling for the purpose of supporting telework better. In fact, one of the things, if you look backwards, the pandemic required, and the pandemic and the remodeling for the last two plus years uh, required that all of the headquarters staff be in maximum flexible telework because we had very limited space in the headquarters. That's continued. So we've had a long experience with it now, and we found that we can, in fact, continue work and thrive. So we're not afraid of having to be in that situation. And in fact, there are people in family situations who, who embrace that and find that those types of situations work. So we're looking to the future to see how we can take our revised new facility and match the benefits of having people come together and meet each other and have that in-person synergy that can happen only in person mixed with uh, some flexible telework as well. Yeah, so no traditional cubicle farm for all 10,000 people. Well, uh, yes and no. No in that there will be uh, there will be a telework situation, but yes in the sense that we are doing a hoteling type of right. operation where we take space, essentially be large cubicles as well as offices, and then folks will be able to say, I'm going to be here. I take this space for these days, and uh, I'll be working at home otherwise. Robert Santos is director of the U.S. Census Bureau. Thanks so much for thorough coverage here. Oh, I'm absolutely delighted. I am at your service, sir. And I want to give a shout out to the federal community as public servants. We all rock. We rock. Indeed you do. We'll post this interview plus a link to his blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive anywhere you get your podcasts. Still to come, meet the civilian career employee who's operated at the highest levels of the national security apparatus. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Continuing our series of interviews with the most recent class of Presidential Rank Award winners, we turn to someone who's been on the show before. Kara Abercrombie is the former acting deputy director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. She's now on detail at the National Security Council, and she joins me now, Ms. Abercrombie. Good to have you back. Thanks. Nice to be here. Tell us now what your title is and more important, what you're doing at the National Security Council these days. Sure. Uh, So I am a deputy assistant to the president and coordinator for defense policy and arms control with the National Security Council. I've been on detail there since January of 2021. Uh, And I lead a couple of teams on the defense side of the house. We are looking largely at space policy, nuclear policy, force posture, security cooperation, 
including with Ukraine over this past year, uh, as well as looking to ultimately close uh, the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay. On the arms control front, we're looking for an extension uh, eventually, hopefully, to the New START Treaty, um, arms control nonproliferation, export controls, and a, and a host of other things. It seems like the pandemic and then what you, you were in the midst of when you started there, and now the Ukraine situation has really scrambled things with all of these weapons flows going to different parts of the world principally to Ukraine from different parts of the world. And it's not nuclear, but it's still things that would come under arms control. Yeah, no, so certainly we are working across the interagency. We, as you've seen, have sent a tremendous amount of security assistance to Ukraine. And one of the things my team's been working diligently on um, across the interagency is ensuring we have accountability for those systems. And we do have confidence in that. We've worked a lot with countries in the region over the years to ensure arms are uh, not illicitly transferred across borders. We've helped build capacity and more broadly, you know, looking to uphold uh, broader arms control and non-proliferation regimes, which, as you noted, are being tested at the moment. And as we send ever more sophisticated weapons to Ukraine, and now these German tanks, looks like they're going to be headed there. And those are pretty high tech because Germany has a history of making good tanks. Is one of the worries that these things could fall into Russian hands because their stuff turns out to be pretty primitive and sort of crappy compared to what the West has. And they could get a hold of some of this stuff and, and get a jump start. With every arms transfer decision that we or our allies make, we, we factor in all of these considerations about the risk of possibly falling into other hands. And we're quite confident, number one, that the Ukrainians are using these to great effect and quite responsibly. Uh, we're not really worried about the risk of transfer at large, but certainly on the battlefield, there is always that that risk. And so we factor that into account before we transfer anything. And just to roll back to history for a moment, when you were with us the last time, a few years ago, you were working on job certification, job training standards for people working for the Defense Security Cooperation Agency at that time. How did that all come out? And what kind of standards or job basic training needs did you come up with? Yeah, I'm really proud of that effort. It was a rather Herculean effort that was mandated by Congress, uh, who noted appropriately that we spend an awful lot of um, U.S. assistance dollars and time on providing our allies and partners with capabilities and training. And they wanted to ensure that the U.S. workforce was properly trained, not only in the laws and regulations that govern all of that, but also in the implications for our relationships with countries abroad. So what we did was was over a two-year period, really, Really both develop a certification program uh, to train the more than 15,000 DOD uh, civilian and military officials who do that kind of work across the department and around the world. Uh, and we so we created um, a three-tiered training system. We invested heavily in the educational platform. Um, we established the Defense Security Cooperation University. I was the first president of that. Uh, but we went to great pains before the pandemic to make sure we had a very strong learning management system that was capable of delivering web-based virtual learning in addition to in-classroom training, which served us very well in the pandemic. It let us pilot the program virtually in the first year. And I'm very proud to say the program's now been um, officially established into Defense Department policy through an instruction uh, and is well underway to training and certifying um, the, the workforce. 
We're speaking with Kara Abercrombie. She's a recent presidential rank award winner, now on detail at the National Security Council. So would you say that that work in developing the workforce and the tools to keep developing it would be one of the reasons you feel you got that rank award? Absolutely. That was, as I said, a rather significant undertaking. And in doing so, I had a very strong team at the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. We worked diligently to be smart about setting up something new. There had been actually a RAND study commissioned at the outset when the legislation was passed that estimated more than 250 new positions would need to be created to implement a program of this scale. I am proud to say because we automated a lot of the compliance mechanisms through connecting the learning management system to personnel um, databases, we only needed to hire about two dozen new personnel. So that was, you know, investment up front and thinking smartly about how to run a program um, reaped tremendous dividends. I guess they call that efficiency. Yes. <laughs> well, that's interesting because now that you have participated at the policy level and you're close to the central nerve system of the whole defense and national security apparatus, and yet you've also operated nuts and bolts bureaucratic programs to make sure that the government people are trained and that the systems they use to train are up to date. So you've worked really at the operational level and now at the policy level. What does that make you, do you think? Pretty senior. I mean, you're a member of the senior executive service, but not many people get to work at both those levels, do they? No, I feel very fortunate. You know, it it, it is not um, common for uh, career officials to be detailed uh, to the level that I've been detailed at at the White House. And it it is I pinch myself every day for having the opportunity to serve at the White House. But I think it makes me you know, a better assistant to the president, to the national security advisor, because I know how when we establish new policy, I know what it takes to actually implement it across the bureaucracy. And I think that helps me connect the you know, the implementers, if you will, to help them sort of see the vision that we're trying to accomplish through policy and help them navigate a path to making it achievable, but also to set realistic expectations at the White House. We can have bold vision, but we also need to be pragmatic in what it will take to get that accomplished. And day to day, what's your life like? Are you going to an office somewhere? I imagine the National Security Council is somewhere in the vicinity of the White House. That's right. We're in that very large, beautiful, ornate building, uh, the Eisenhower Executive Office building right next door to the West Wing. Uh, My daily commute is walking back and forth across that street multiple times a day um, for meetings and engagements. And we've been in the office since day one, despite the pandemic, just because of the nature of the work. Right. That big old pile that was war, treasury and state, I think, at one time. Yes. Yeah, so the Second Empire building that we all admire so much with the yep. great stairwells. So it's mostly meetings all day? Mostly meetings all day. Yes. <laughs> wow. And uh, do they do they provide coffee for the meetings or everyone brings their own in the government? Uh, the little secret at the White House is the, the White House supplies us with uh, chocolate and soda. So plenty of caffeine and sugar to go around. All right. So that, <laughs> well, that makes it bearable. <laughs> so what are your plans? Where do you go from here? Someone that's done what you've done. I am committed to public service. I feel passionately about the importance of having career officials who can provide that institutional continuity across administrations. So I'm very proud to serve in the Biden administration, but I'm also very proud to continue serving in the federal government in some capacity when this little tour is over. So you'll go back to regular Title V 
career person when this one is over? Yes. Okay. And are there things that you can't discuss with the family and so forth? I mean, there must be clearance level discussions at the yes, National Security Council. That is, not dis- that is not dissimilar from a lot of the work I've done at the Defense Department. My husband just knows if, if the phone rings, I, I need to take it. And maybe he'll read about it in the paper tomorrow. <laughs> and maybe not, but he'll never find out about it from you either. That's right. I guess that's the life we chose, as uh, one of the great lawyers said. Kara Abercrombie is a recent Presidential Rank Award winner. She's now on detail at the National Security Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to our podcast version wherever you get your shows. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder the defense department says it's just a few months away from transitioning away from firefighting chemicals that have contaminated groundwater at hundreds of current and former bases DOD has now approved a military specification for a safer alternative firefighting foam and plans to start making the switch this summer. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has an update on the change and DOD's efforts to clean up decades of contamination. The chemicals at issue, known most commonly by the acronym PFAS, can come from a lot of sources. But in the military's case, the main cause of water contamination has been aqueous film-forming foam, which DOD developed in the 1960s and has been using as a fire extinguishing agent ever since. In January, under orders from Congress, the department published its first-ever military specification for firefighting foam that doesn't contain the chemicals of concern. Brendan Owens is the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Installations, Energy, and Environment. Congressional authorizations and appropriations made it possible for the department to continue its ongoing work to evaluate fluorine-free alternatives. Several fluorine-free foams are currently proceeding through the military specification qualification process, and the department plans to begin the transition to the use of these products this summer. So while we implement new technology to avert future risk, we continue our cleanup efforts intended to safeguard the health and well-being of our people. Nothing is more important than our people, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, guardians, and their families. The investments we make to improve the built and natural environments where they live and work are investments that pay off by improving their health and well-being. So far, the department has identified more than 700 military bases where there have been known or suspected releases of PFAS-containing foams over the years. Most of those cases have been connected to firefighting training, and the military services say they've stopped using the PFAS-containing chemicals for anything other than genuine emergency situations while they wait for PFAS-free alternatives to arrive. According to an analysis of DOD's data last year by the Environmental Working Group, 389 sites have had PFAS detected in nearby groundwater, and 266 of those have contamination levels above what the EPA considers unsafe. In an interview with Federal News Network, at the time that analysis was released, the working group's Jared Hayes says DOD has a long way to go to remediate the contamination problem on its bases and surrounding communities. In fact, those efforts really haven't even started. DOD needs to speed up the process with which they are using to clean up these chemicals. Uh, Right now, they are going through the Superfund or CERCLA process at many of their sites, but no real cleanup has begun And they haven't entered the cleanup phase of CERCLA at majority of these sites. And so 
you have communities around those bases that are still being exposed to PFAS chemicals and aren't seeing an end right now. The worst place that we have seen so far has been England Air Force Base in Louisiana. Over 1.5 million for PFBS, which there is a health advisory for currently, and over 7.1 million parts per trillion for PFOS and 3.8 million for PFOA many orders of magnitude above the health advisory level. Testimony this week before the House Armed Services Committee confirmed the military services are still in that assessment phase. Out of all the services, the Army has the most sites where contamination is suspected, 341. Officials testified this week that the initial phase of the investigation has only been finished at 180 of those locations. 80 have moved on to a more advanced phase of investigation. But Owen says DOD is committed to cleanup, too. It's vitally important that the full department takes its responsibility to, to, to deal with the legacies of the decisions that we've made. Congress has been pressing the department for several years to deal with the PFAS problem. The 2020 Defense Authorization Act gave DOD until October of this year to stop using firefighting foam that contains PFAS chemicals. But North Carolina Congressman Don Davis says the cleanup process is taking too long. Unfortunately, Camp Lejeune. Um, has a long history of service members that's been um, harmed um, by environmental contaminations, specifically dealing with the water. In recent years, we've learned that service members have been exposed to another contaminant, PFAS, um, that exposes them to additional health risk. Um, in the fiscal year 21 um, NDAA, uh, you were asked to provide a timeline and cost estimate for cleanup of all sites that's been contaminated by the, uh, the PFAS. Uh, the response to that requirement indicated that while the Navy has begun the cleanup process, phase two of the process of the remedial investigation and feasibility uh, study will not be completed until the last quarter of fiscal year um, 2029, uh, which means we are probably looking at 2030 before the meaningful cleanup. And that 2029 date isn't a projected date for the completion of cleanup. It's the target for the Navy to finish its remedial investigation of the PFAS problem at Camp Lejeune. According to a report the department submitted to Congress last year, that timeline is similar across the country. And target dates to finish the cleanup process across sites that are found to be contaminated hasn't even been set yet. New Mexico Congressman Gabe Vasquez says he's seen a pattern of DOD being slow to remediate its past environmental mistakes. As a former city councilor in the city of Las Cruces, New Mexico, uh, where the National Guard was found uh, liable for contaminants of PCE in a Superfund site that cost the city of Las Cruces $6 million, uh, we as a city with limited resources had to go to court with the Department of Defense in order to clean up those contaminants because they were found by the EPA to be in the drinking water of our residents. That, to me, as a local elected official, was an unacceptable response from the de Department of Defense not to accept the liability that it later took a local government to be able to find at fault. It is very hard to attract not just service members but families uh, to the missions at Holloman Air Force Base uh, when there is a danger that they will be ingesting toxic chemicals from buildings that have asbestos and other uh, chemicals that have yet to be remediated, uh, despite the record investments that we have made in our defense budget year after year. I think this is a critical uh, readiness component, uh, especially where we are handling uh, such critical missions in places like White Sands Missile Range and Holloman Air Force Base that are so critically important to our, the defense of our nation. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Census Bureau fine-tunes almost everything it does as it transforms itself into a digital agency. 
This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.